Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to do a discussion about how do we take care of patients in the post-operative setting, uh, specifically in regards to pain management. You know, I feel like our our main goal with anesthesia is obviously to keep patients comfortable during their procedure, but ultimately we strive to make this the best perioperative experience as a whole for these patients. And I think that starts in the preoperative setting all the way through when they get discharged from PACU and even when they get sent back home or to their inpatient hospital bed, whatever that may be. Uh, if our goal simply is to make them comfortable during the procedure, but yet they're in a ton of pain afterwards, it doesn't look very good on our end. And really, at least for me, I want to make sure that that patient, when I drop them off in recovery, they're comfortable, they're relaxed, they're calm. Uh, usually that's how these patients judge their preoperative experience is how they end it, right? It's all, it's not the first 90% of someone's experience of how they judge something. It's how do they leave that experience? What tastes did they leave with? And if you have these patients in a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, uh, it really just, for one, is miserable for them, but then two, it makes us not look the greatest. And I mean, Tanner, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about this throughout, but there's multiple ways to do this. There's multiple ways to skin a cat with anesthesia. And this this uh, is definitely not a, a difference with this uh, issue of, in terms of post-op pain management. There's so many different ways to do it. Right. And we'll get into this. And it, it just makes sense that to manage patients really well in the pack, you starts in pre-op. It definitely, uh, you know, continues on to interop management of patients. But today we want to think about, okay, so, you know, you have different patients with different, different morbidities and different profiles, different procedures that are done. If you're still having pain in the PACU, what are some different strategies that you can use? I think oftentimes we feel like um, our hands are kind of tied or you're like, well, I already gave them, you know, fentanyl and Dilaudid. And so they should be covered. And now what, like, how do you be creative and try to figure out different ways to manage their pain and to make sure that they're well taken care of. Like Cole mentioned, this is a huge, huge, uh, you know, thing that they report on surveys. And a lot of times you'll, you know, you can read through, you know, surveys, if that's something that you want to do when you're, if you're wanting to look through surveys of your own evaluations, if that's something that you'd like to do. Uh, I think just a really common theme that comes up is, you know, this provider was attentive and checked on me and pack you and made sure that I was taken care of with my pain. And this is something that, like Cole said, they're not going to remember probably much from pre-op after you're giving them, you know, your Versed and, and other drugs. Obviously, they're not going to remember intraoperatively. They will remember how you came and spoke to them in PACU, how you manage their pain, how you, uh, you know, really took time and effort to make sure that they were in a good position. Um, and, and, you know, I always tell patients, my first job is to keep you safe. Then the next thing that I'm thinking about is how to keep you comfortable. So those need to stay in that order. And we'll talk about different considerations that you'll want to take into account when you're managing someone's pain. So obviously you want to keep them safe. And this is where we want to go with our discussion today is how do you make sure that you can manage their pain while also doing so uh, in a safe manner and effective manner, but also making sure we have extra tools that we can use aside from maybe just, you know, our typical narcotics that we would use. And as Tanner mentioned, 
this is such a, a main factor that goes into the patient's recovery. It's not simply just for one, what they're going to judge and write down on a survey, but two, their actual recovery in terms of how fast are they going to be able to start ambulating again? How is their bowel motility going to be? Well, when you're in pain and you're in extreme pain, those are going to be limited as long with a bunch of other factors that go into it. Uh, those are two of the main ones. And really, we want to make these patients comfortable, not simply from a stance of that they feel better, but also that they're going to start on their long road or short road, whatever it may be, a recovery after the procedure. And they're going to have a kickstart in the right direction if they're controlled and comfortable. And it's one of the most gratifying feelings. I mean, we've all been there before. You drop off that patient in recovery and they're just peaceful. They're calm. They're either just resting with their eyes closed. And if you say their name, they'll just pop their eyes open and smile at you. Uh, or they're just uh, already awake, they're alert, they tell you they're in no pain. It's one of the most gratifying feelings. And then you have that moment when you drop off the patient, that's the exact opposite. They're screaming, they're writhing around in pain, they're combative, uh, they're grimacing, they're coughing, they're bucking. And it's just, oh, you just have that feeling like you did not do a good enough job on this patient. And so ideally, what are some of the ways today that we want to talk about that gets you pointed in more of the direction of a nice, calm, relaxed patient? And recovery. Because let's face it, it's better for the patient. It's better for the PACU nurses. They're going to like you better if you drop off the patient that's comfortable. And then if you do have an issue where that patient is in pain and recovery, if you're somebody at your facility that has to manage that pain in recovery, those nurses are going to want you to be able to step in and provide the, the right type of interventions to handle that pain. And so we want to do a discussion today about what are the different techniques that we can use? And as Tanner alluded to, this really starts all the way back in pre-op. We have to get ahead of this pain, make them comfortable from the get-go, but then also what do we do intraoperatively? And then importantly now, what do we do when they wake up and they are in pain and recovery? What are some of the rescue things that we can do? And one of the stats that I read from an article um, that we have in the show notes here uh, from Horn uh, 2022 says that about 75% of the surgical patients experience acute post-operative pain. So three-fourths of our patients, when they wake up, are going to have some level of pain in recovery. Ide ideally, we want to make that a mild pain, not a medium to severe pain. Um, but again, this is not a rare occurrence. This is something that we have to deal with on virtually every patient that we drop off in recovery. Right. And like Cole said, this starts with the really good communication and relationship building in the pre-op area. Oftentimes we talked about this on our chronic opioid discussion where you have to have that realistic expectation for many of these patients. Hey, you're doing a, you know, a huge back case. You've been on chronic opioid therapy for a long period of time. I'm going to do my best with these, you know, different modalities, but I do expect you're going to have some pain when you wake up. We're going to try to manage that, but that's just, you know, making sure you're on the same page. Or if it's not that patient and you really do think that you're going to, you know, have them in a nice spot. Uh, I always like to tell them that too, you know, like this is going to be some discomfort, but I really do expect that you wake up feeling pretty comfortable. Here's my plan. Here's the things that I've taken into consideration. And so I think just building that rapport, letting them know that either way you do have a plan that you are, you know, very in tune with their specific needs and just setting up realistic expectations in the preoperative setting. The, the other thing that we can do in the pre-op setting, and we, and we know this, we go into more detail on this on other episodes, 
but we can get ahead of things using things like gabapentin or pregabalin. We can use those ahead of time, even even uh, Celebrex or you know other medications that you can give ahead of time to reduce the amount of inflammatory mediators and the beginning of these pain pathways, even ahead of you know going back to a procedure. So there are things that you can do ahead of time. Many times those are going to be driven by the surgical team and they'll put in orders for those types of orders. Uh, again, if that's not the case at your at your facility, that's something that you'll definitely want to keep an eye on. Really good PACU control is going to start even here in the pre-op area. Intraoperatively, there's, you know, this, this is where I think really this is like the meat and potatoes of when you're going to actually be managing somebody's pain. Uh, again, it's not where we're going to spend most of our time today because the the point of today's discussion is to think about our strategies for PACU. But this is really where you're going to set yourself up well for uh, a good patient in PACU. We all know this, uh, and we'll just take a few minutes here and talk over a few things to to address. Obviously, you're going to be watching your vital signs, heart rate, your blood pressure, respiratory rate. Those are all going to be really good indicators of your pain status. You're also going to want to know, you know, what are you working with? Is a surgeon going to be injecting local at the site um, prior to the patient waking up? Does the patient you're working with do a good job of injecting local or is it kind of just a, you know, a shoddy field block that really doesn't do a, a whole lot? And maybe that takes some time getting to know the surgeon and getting to know how those patients wake up in PACU. Uh, you could do other things such as uh, giving the patient, you know, IV lidocaine that's going to be cont continued into PACU. You could have an epidural that you continue into PACU. You could be, um, you know, obviously giving narcotics intraoperatively, especially as you get towards the end of the case to, to try to manage, like we said earlier, when you're looking at the hemodynamics, trying to make sure that they're in a good spot. The, the one thing that I'll say here, and I think this is something that just takes some time to get used to. A lot of times you'll look at the patient when you're getting ready to wake them up. And um, I'm speaking now more towards the students who are listening to this discussion, but you'll look at the patient and you'll think, Hey, they look pretty good. You know, they're breathing 14 blood pressures, you know, in the nineties heart rate is, you know, the eighties and they, they look honestly pretty good. And then you look over and your gas is like 1.4 Mac or something like they're basically Mac bar and they have these types of vitals and you've done a, a really large, you know, abdominal case or spine case. And you have to get used to thinking, okay, is this patient really covered from an analgesic standpoint or are they just so sedated that they look pretty comfortable and it might be counterintuitive to start working in some, you know, narcotics or other modalities at that point. But it's important to know, I think Cole, like you've, I've experienced this too. You think your patient's really great. And then you wake them up and like you said, they're bucking and writhing in pain. And you're like, man, I totally misjudged that. And so I think some of it is just getting to learn the procedures and getting to know the patient. You'll, you'll start to know patients when you go talk to them in pre-op, you're like, all right, this person's going to take, you know, a lot of uh, pain management. And sometimes that's, you know, that judgment is, is wrong, but you just look through the, you know, the health history and there's things that you can put together that you're maybe thinking this patient is going to be more, you know, opioid tolerant or, you know, whatever it might be. But I think that's something where we get burned a lot of times. You think this patient's really comfortable and you, you still have so much, um, you know, anesthetic on board that that's all going to be off in PACU. So then when that's all off, do you really think this patient is covered from, you know, an analgesic standpoint 
or do you think they're just really sedated? So those are some things to, I think, really get used to thinking and, and really starting to trust your drugs as far as, you know, I'm confident that I can give this drug, this dose. And when my, you know, gas comes off, then, you know, I think they'll be in a good spot or you just need to start getting your, your, your anesthetic off. You need to start turning down your propofols, turning down your gas. So you can get a clear picture of what, you know, what their actual baseline looks like so that you can work in some, some, you know, narcotics or whatever else you're, you're wanting to work in. Um, but I think oftentimes, again, we just get deceived thinking this patient's great. And then we turn off everything that's been keeping them comfortable and they're not. So, you know, let's talk through some of the, the pain medications that we keep giving intraoperatively to help with that. Yeah. Just to piggyback off of that. I think one of the most important times for pain management is the 10, 15 minutes before wake up. Can you figure out one, are they going to be in pain when I take off this anesthetic gas or whatever I'm using to, to keep them sedated? Once that's gone, are they still going to be fine? Tanner did a great job of explaining this, but I've said this like probably 10 times in our episodes. The thing I love about anesthesia is it's just as much of an art as it is science. And there's finesse that goes into it, right? There's obviously the science of how the drugs work, but there's also that intuition that you have and you build up when, when judging a patient's vital signs, how the patient appears, how they're looking both under anesthesia. And then once you pull the tube, once you wake them up, et cetera. And so there's so many different ways to do this. Uh, one of the ways that I have really enjoyed doing, and I feel like it's, it's given me a lot of success with bringing patients comfortably to pack you is I will try to get them down to a half Mac of uh, anesthetic gas as soon as I can, when they're about ready to close. And I want to get them back breathing instantly when they're starting to close. And the reason I do this is I want to get as good and as long of a picture as I can about that trend of what they're going to do when they wake up, as Tanner mentioned. And so I always get the patient back breathing as soon as possible. And given that there's nothing against them breathing, um, if there's any issues with them suturing something up. But the reason I do that is because if I'm down at half a Mac of anesthetic, and now I've got them breathing back on their own. I can titrate my narcotic or whatever I'm going to give, Presidex, et cetera. I start titrating all that in more so at the end of the case, judging their vital signs. And I don't have them completely off the anesthetic gas, but I have them down enough that I'm starting to see how are they doing. And I've had a couple uh, students that have been with me before that, you know, their respiratory rate may be 18. And they're like, okay, I'm going to start putting in some fentanyl. And which is, Totally fine. I usually do that as well. My my marker is like 12 to 15 on my rate. And if they start getting higher than that, I start working things in. Uh, but one of the things, this is kind of a sidetrack note, but one of the things that I've noted lately that people do is they just look at that number of respiratory rate and they start putting in more meds. And then what do you know, you turn off your anesthetic gas and all of a sudden the patient's not breathing hardly at all. They're having hypercapnia develop and sometimes you have to give Narcan for it. And one of the reasons why is because simply looking at the number doesn't tell you everything. You have to use some intuition with it. Uh, the reason in this case why I don't like to give it um, specifically just because of the number of respiratory rate is if I still have a patient on anesthetic gas and they're still breathing through a straw, through an ET tube, the volumes might not be that high. And so I always look at what are my volumes compared to my respiratory rate. I don't know, Tanner, if you've experienced this as well, but you could have a patient starting to breathe again on their own and maybe you haven't reversed them enough yet and they're still weak and they're pulling half the volumes they normally would because for one, they're weak and two, they're breathing through a straw. 
And now the rate is higher to compensate for that. So your patient may have a rate of 18 to 20, but they might actually not be in that much pain. So it, it just goes more than just a number. And so I don't want to come in here and say, you know, I treat everybody above rate of 15. I'll give them more narcotic before they wake up because there's so much more that goes into that. But again, I want them, I really do look at the respiratory rate and I want them breathing lower, slower, and more comfortably before wake up. Are you looking to join an organization where you can work at your full scope of practice? Join Sound Anesthesia's team and benefit from CRNA leadership with over 20 years of experience. Sound CRNAs enjoy career development, a clear leadership pathway, robust well-being resources, and the ability to perform at the top of their license. Sound is dedicated to providing our CRNAs with the tools needed to thrive in their practice. With multiple nationwide opportunities, we are confident you will find the right program for you. Learn more at careers.soundphysicians.com. Yeah, this is my least, least favorite answer when I was in school, when I would ask like, hey, if somebody's breathing 15 a minute, do you give 25 a fentanyl? And like, I wanted a very concrete answer of like, yes, if it's 15, you give 25. And then I could like write that in a notepad and I would just be the best CRNA ever. And they're like, well, it just depends. And now I'm like, when somebody asks you that same thing, you're like, well, it just depends. Cause that same patient could be having abdominal surgery. It is in pain and is taking really shallow breaths because they're in pain. And every time they take a really big breath that hurts, you know? So like exactly what you said, you can't just treat the number because that could be them breathing through a straw and, you know, having really shallow volumes, or it could be that they're really, really in pain and they're taking really shallow breaths because it hurts. And so looking at the patient and figuring out, okay, what's the picture of, you know, this case, what's going on compared to just treating, okay, here's what the vital signs are saying. So if this, then this, and I, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Cole. I think, I think as a newer CRNA and then, you know, with students, you're like, okay, you can do that. That's totally fine. But just tell me why, why are you thinking that it's like rarely that there's just if then scenarios. And I think we can get really used to doing that. Uh, and you really do have to look at the patient and figure out what's going on with them. And sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you think that they're in pain and it's really that they just uh, are unable to take larger volumes and, and you miss it and you give Narcan and you still have a safe patient and you move on. So I think that, you know, it's not an all or nothing thing by any means. Let's talk a little bit about some of your pain management interoperatively, and then we'll again, get to the PACU portion of this discussion. This was something that somebody had me do when I was in school. And I thought it was really helpful for me as I think about managing my patients. They had me draw a timeline for this specific case. So I, I don't remember exactly what the case was, but let's just say we were doing a gallbladder. And they said, okay, it's, it's 9.30 in the morning right now. What time do you expect that this case will be over? And, you know, we were getting probably through that case and, you know, whatever. So I'm thinking, okay, 10.15 is going to be about the end of this case. And I said, great. So you gave fentanyl an induction. What's your onset and duration of fentanyl? So I'm thinking through onset of fentanyl is around five minutes, three to six minutes. Um, durations up to an hour. Great. So I gave that on induction. Induction was like 9.15. We're going to be exhibiting this patient moving to PACU around you know, 10.15, 10.20. 
have I done anything for this patient for their pain relief in PACU? And I think that was the first time that I was thinking, you know, they said, we're the airway experts, we're the pain management experts. And if you drop off that patient with this scenario, you've basically given up your expertise to an order set of just saying like, you know, if this, then this, that you're giving to whoever's recovering the patient and you're not using any of your skill or any of your thought processes into managing this patient long-term. So the, the preceptor told me, okay, so it's, you're thinking you're gonna be done about 10, 15. So at 10 45, how are you going to manage this patient's pain? And that really got me thinking in terms of, okay, if I'm going to be using long-term opioids, you know, what does that look like? Am I going to get any coverage at 1045 if I give them Dilaudid up front? Well, yeah, my, on, my duration of action for Dilaudid is two to four hours. And so I could give them Dilaudid at the beginning of this case. It's going to help me throughout the case. And it's going to give them pain relief into PACU, give the PACU nurse time to get settled and start working in some other, you know, pain medications. Morphine, same thing, durations, three to four hours. So, so what are, what are the things that you need to think about in terms of like, literally think of a timeline when do you think this case is going to be over again? This is very fluid. We all know this, that cases are very up and down as far as you might expect it to be one thing. And the surgeon runs into something unexpected and takes a lot longer, but use your best judgment into thinking, you know, how am I going to keep this patient 30, 45 minutes, an hour into PACU recovery time where they can start, you know, waking up, drinking, um, you know, they're, they're getting through the effects of anesthesia. Now you can start getting in PO medications. If that's something that you, you know, would desire for them, they can get to the floor and be managed by the hospital's team, whatever that looks like. How do you get them past just the first, you know, 15 minutes or even less into PACU. And then now all of a sudden you've got all this pain bearing down on them because you didn't think through your, your timeline. So I think especially starting out when you're thinking about how to manage them, think in terms of concrete numbers, actually what time is it and how are you going to get them to, you know, 35, 45 minutes, an hour into pack you with your pain management strategy. Uh, the one thing I'll say here while we're talking about morphine versus allotted, I kind of group those together. Just keep in mind that uh, morphine is going to be... Um, in my opinion, a little dirtier of a drug than Dilaudid. It releases histamine. You tend to see more nausea with the with morphine. And also it's going to be more involved with your kidneys as far as its metabolism. So if you have somebody that has poor kidney function, again, something you might want to consider when you're just choosing between Dilaudid and morphine. Um, we'll go into more, we go into much more detail with all of these in our opioid discussions, but just think about those things as you are um, you know, trying to get them intraoperatively prepared for, for PACU. The other two things that I'll mention here with uh, intraoperative medications is uh, Presidex is something that I try to use on almost all of my patients. We know that this has effects on the alpha-2 receptor, uh, works similarly to clonidine. And so you'll also get effects of it as well as you'll obviously still get your sedation, which we tend to think more of sedation than pain management, but you still will get some um, help with pain there as well. I'll start to work in, I'll usually give them about four to eight mics uh, on wake up just to get them comfortably into PACU. And again, this is just all playing into how you manage a patient that's going to go into PACU. So to me, it's really nice when they're just a little sleepy, comfortable, you can wake them up for sure, but they're just kind of in this like twilight comfortable stage getting them into PACU, hooking them up, giving your report just gives you a little time. If you do need to get more pain medications on board, I think it's just a helpful thing to, to incorporate.
Right. And as we move into the post-op setting and how we're going to manage these patients, the biggest thing here is, did you so, did you set yourself up for success intra-op? Because otherwise it's a lot harder to play catch up. But again, there are times where you just didn't give enough, whether because it's a patient that just requires a lot more than you first anticipated. Uh, maybe for whatever reason, you thought it would be less painful of a procedure than it was and you hadn't given as much Whatever it may be, there's going to be those times where you need to play catch up. You need to have rescue meds set a, set up to be able to give in recovery. There's also times where we're going to be expecting significant pain in recovery, and we're going to have things lined up in recovery already from the beginning that are going to be a part of this patient's pain treatment plan. Uh, but a big thing that I want to talk about before we go into this is just the idea of a multimodal strategy. And I feel like in the past, it used to be that opioids were the mainstay, the mainstream treatment for post-op pain management. And while I don't want to take anything away from opioids, because they are still such a big heavy hitter uh, and such important medication to use for the treatment of these patients, there's also so many additional interventions that we can tie together to provide what's known as a multimodal strategy. And really from what we found in the research is there's just so many things that point towards this multimodal strategy being successful. Uh, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but it gets patients up moving sooner. It has less nausea effects than if you just pounded somebody with opioids. Same thing with the uh, bowel response. You get the bowel motility up and moving more. Uh, for one, just not being in pain, but then two, if you're mixing things together with the opioids, we all know that opioids can uh, decrease bowel motility. So it helps from that standpoint. And it gets the patient uh, recovering out of the hospital a lot sooner. There's just so many things that factor into using a multimodal approach. And we think that it's so beneficial that we know and use these different interventions that we have available to us. So the remainder of this session, we really want to go through the different options that are available. And if you've followed us for the last couple of sessions that we've done, we've hit on several different aspects of these interventions and treatment methods. There's a lot of non-opioids or opioid adjunctive therapy that we can do. And that's going to tie right into this talk today. We're not going to go into quite as much detail on the mechanism of action of all these medications just because we've done that in the last couple of sessions. Uh, but again, we want to just talk through the different ways that we have available here. So something that I something that I have really found interesting at the facility that I started working at after graduation is they use IV lidocaine drips. Uh, they use IV lidocaine drips throughout the case, but also for 24 hours post-op for their ERAS patients. And this is something that I really did not use going through school, but I can tell you I've seen a dramatic uh, increase in the comfort level of my patients. Uh, not only during the case, I've had to give way less opioids during the case, but also in recovery. They are so much more comfortable, so much more relaxed. This really goes a long way. And so for me, this is going to be a protocol, most likely at whatever facility you're at. Uh, the facility that we do uh, have these protocols set in place. It's all based on weight. And so I'll run an IV lidocaine drip throughout the case based on what weight the patient is. And then we'll cut that dose in half a couple minutes before wake up. And then that dose will stay for 24 hours into uh, the patient's inpatient stay. So this is not something that we'll do for an outpatient procedure, but if we're doing a bigger abdominal case, uh, whatever it may be, if it's an ERAS type uh, procedure, we will definitely use IV lidocaine. However, I, I will say that this does cause some level of sedation and also some hypotension. 
So if you find that you're struggling with hypotension in a patient and you're running this drip, uh, just cut back on the dose of it. That's one of the big things that I have noticed. Uh, it really does affect uh, the blood pressure by by uh, uh, dropping it to enough where I have to use the neodrips pretty frequently throughout a case. And then I also have to drop it pretty low in recovery uh, just to keep their blood pressure maintained while they're still waking up. Another thing to keep in mind is to consider regional anesthesia. Oftentimes, I'll still consent patients ahead of time, even if the surgeon doesn't want to block for a specific procedure. It's still a good idea to consent them for a block that would be useful in that case so that you can use it uh, for more of a rescue block should they need pain control afterwards. And uh, there's many reasons why maybe you've given them a lot of opioids and they're still not finding pain relief. Maybe you've given them a lot of these other adjuncts and it's still, you know, not quite taking away the uh, pain and they're still not able to work with PT or, you know, whatever the case may be. Keeping these uh, regional anesthesia techniques in mind is helpful just to, again, use them if you would need to rescue with them. Ideally, we're going to be using these you know, ahead of time or intraoperatively, so we're not even getting to this point. But again, for the sake of this discussion, we're talking about the what ifs. What if you're in PACU and you're still with you know uncontrolled pain? What are things that we can do? So keep that in mind. Regional anesthesia would still be a, a good option, even in PACU, just to uh, manage somebody's pain. Many times, like I said, we'll do this in PACU. Um, like say you're doing a hip and they, you did a spinal, you know, we're going to do typically uh, a, a hip block uh, or typically going to do a block for the hip in PACU anyways. And this will give them longer term pain relief than, you know, any of the medications that we would give them would, but this is specifically for like a rescue, say that, you know, you did a procedure on the ankle and you didn't do a block. They did um, some localization during the procedure, but they're still having pain. Well, afterwards we could still go in and do, you know, a pop block. We could still do an adductor canal block. If you're looking at like the medial aspect of the ankle or, uh, you know, there's other things that we can do that are still going to be beneficial for them in a pain management wise. We're still have options where we're not taking away their motor or making their, you know, length of stay any longer. Things like that would be things that you want to consider. Another thing to consider is Toradol. Oftentimes, I feel like this is like the first thing that PACU nurses will ask me if I've come back with a, you know, a gynae procedure or an abdominal case, did, did the patient get tore at all? Because from talking with, you know, the uh, PACU nurses, they feel like they have, at least in my experience, get such good pain relief with Toradol. And so if it's something that I've not given for one reason or another, they'll ask if they can give it, if I've ordered it, but it's something they typically want to get on pretty quickly. Keep in mind with Toradol, there's some consideration as far as the sealing effect of NSAIDs and how effective it's going to be. So remember, you're not going to give this with asthmatic patients if they've had you know excessive bleeding during the case. Also a consideration for why you wouldn't want to give Toradol, but usually just 15 milligrams is going to be uh, enough of a dose to give them really good pain relief. We talked about uh, earlier, you know, the the difference between, in my opinion, kind of the three most common opioids that we're going to give dilated fentanyl and morphine. Remember that dilated morphine are going to be your longer term uh, pain management. So be cognizant of that. Say you're going to be giving them, um, you know, patients in PACU and they're trying to go home and they're 80 years old. 
are you really going to want to give Dilaudid to this patient or morphine to this patient? Um, you know, obviously you want to manage their pain. Would it be better to give them fentanyl, get their pain under control, and then get them transitioned over to their oral medications that they'll be taking at home? Or is this, you know, significant enough where you're going to want to give some Dilaudid or morphine? But again, just keep in mind that you do have different, you know, considerations there. Again, morphine is going to be about three to four hours duration. Onset is even within the one to two minute range. Dilaudid takes a little bit longer, two to five minutes to onset duration is two to four hours. And then fentanyl, many times people say they feel, you know, effects right away, but truly the onset is three to six minutes and duration is 30 to 60 minutes. So sometimes fentanyl <clears throat> might be a good option if you just need something to kind of knock down the pain uh, until you can get other things on board, such as PO meds. Uh, and if they're going home and you don't want to, you know, burn that bridge, I'm not saying that dilaudid or morphine is, is contraindicated by any means, but just something to kind of keep in your mind. And just from a personal note, I feel like I see more nausea when I give morphine compared to Dilaudid. So um, just keep that in mind when uh, you're, you are managing these patients, if they are at risk for nausea or if they've already had issues with it, I tend to stick, you know, shy away a little bit from the morphine. So I know that when we've talked recently, something that I really haven't done much, but you've mentioned that you've started doing in your practice is opioid suppositories for like the water spasms. Is that right? Yeah, this was something that I didn't, I never did in school. And this was something that I had, I actually started. So I had a patient, uh, I was probably a month ago and it was a call shift. It was a Cisto case. I was there by myself. It's like 12 o'clock at night. Patient did fine. This is one of those scenarios where waking the patient up, I thought he is like totally comfortable breathing like 12 a minute. I've given, I think it was like 150 of fentanyl throughout the case. Looked great. Got him to pack you. He was actually even communicating like, oh, I feel good. Um, you know, no issues. And then he had a bladder spasm and he was like in excruciating pain. Gave, we started working a little bit Dilaudid. Didn't do anything really. Gave him some Presidex. Uh, seemed to help a little bit, but not really anything. So I'm, I'm calling the surgeon and I'm like, hey, uh, because there was some, long story short, there were some issues with the procedure as far as leaving some fluid in the bladder. And I was wondering maybe if he was having retention, it was causing some pain. So I just wanted to get clear communication with the surgeon to make sure there was nothing, you know, like surgically that needs to be addressed for this patient. Why is he feeling so much pain? Because again, initially he came out feeling just really great. And he was like, Hey, why don't you just give him a BNO suppository, an opium suppository? And I was like, okay, <laughs> I've never done that. I've never ordered that before, but um, so I'm, honestly, like doing a little bit of research, making sure that there's no problems with this patient getting this and give it to him. And it worked great. And so I went, I went home and did a little more research about it. And um, many times this is something that the urologist will actually order or ask you to give during a case for some cysto cases, just to prevent any issues with pain with bladder spasms or um, spasms with the, you know, like the urinary tract. And so this is something that I'm now keeping in the back of my mind. If I do have a uh, um, issue with somebody who's had like a cysto case that you can do this BNO suppository, it's just opium. You can do this BNO suppository and it really does uh, seem to help quite a bit, which is, is an, on a tangent. This is something that is important for you to think about too, when you're looking at your patient, are they having 
pain from a surgical site where, you know, maybe it's the sites that are an issue for uh, a patient after they've had abdominal case where doing a tap block would be helpful. Remember, tap blocks are not going to deal with your visceral pain. So if they're having this diffuse visceral organ pain, the tap blocks aren't going to do anything. So it's important to, to also, I guess, pay attention to, like in this scenario, this was a very specific bladder spasm pain, and we could do something that would help specifically with that. So if you're talking to your patient, it's it's really helpful to get an idea. Is this sharp pain? Is this diffuse pain? Is this localized? Is this generalized? You need to know what kind of pain you're dealing with. And that sometimes will drive your decision-making as far as what medications or treatments you'll, you'll give for the patient. The other, the other one that I'll mention while we're talking about those opioids is Demerol. This is something that uh, you'll see quite a bit as well. Most of the time you'll see this for post-operative shivering. If somebody uh, is shivering really, really badly, you can give them Demerol, which will help with that. I also see sometimes, um, you know, PACU nurses give this to manage pain. And I would just say that you need to keep in mind that it does have, um, you know, your active metabolite and it also does have increased seizure um, risks associated with it. But just something to keep in mind that it's also one that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll see given routinely. Sometimes you can even give like uh, 50 milligrams IM towards the end of a case is another thing that if you're thinking of something intraoperatively to, to help with, uh, you know, managing the patient's pain. Uh, again, not something I see all that often, but I just wanted to also mention that here, especially if you had somebody who was, um, you know, shivering and you needed to manage that. The other thing that you could do, um, muscle relaxants or cyclobenzaprine is something that you can see if somebody's having, uh, issues with, you know, muscle pain, or if they've, you know, sewn muscle layers back together and they're feeling tension there, you can give that, that would help with, um, kind of that muscle relaxant. It's important that I think, I think a lot of times when you're managing these patients pain, a lot of these things go together you know, they're clearing out from anesthesia. They might have a little bit of confusion left on board. They feel discomfort, not really sure if it's discomfort or nausea or uh, just kind of feeling crummy from anesthesia. And so it's not always just like this patient is pain. I'm going to give a pain medication and that's going to take care of it. You know, think, think outside the box. Sometimes even if somebody's just kind of feeling squirrely and even giving a little bit of like Ativan would be something that you would consider if you've given other medications to manage pain. And you really think that you've covered pain, but it's just them coming out of anesthesia and uh, it's associated with pain. There, there's a lot of things that kind of roll together. That's why I think Presidex is a really nice uh, adjunct to use too, because you are going to get pain control, but you're also going to get some of the sedative properties from it as well. And so, you know, these things can all work together. When you're looking at the patient, you look at them, you evaluate uh, what kind of pain, you know, have them describe it to you, but also keep in mind that all these things will, will work together to work towards the comfort of a patient. It's not strictly just like one pain pathway that you're going to try to attack. The last thing that I'll say with the opioids is sometimes you'll choose to give them PO opioids, say they're going home. And uh, I had this situation not too long ago patient was getting ready to go home. Their home pharmacy was like three hours away. They were going to have a uh, car ride to get home, which I think is a whole teller conversation. That sounds like a terrible idea to me to have a, a two and a half hour car ride after a major surgery, but that's neither here nor there. But they, so they wanted something that would be PO last a little bit longer and that's fine. You can order those things, but keep in mind, 
onset of those things can be up to an hour, 30 minutes to an hour to get full onset of those medications. So I ordered that, but I also kept them there for another 45 minutes at the facility just to monitor. It's the first time they're having um, that medication. And so it's not like something IV where you just, you know, you get immediate effects of it. So if that patient were to have, you know, really, really bad nausea from this, or if they were going to um, have respiratory depression because of everything else that they've had, it's important that if you are going to order something like that PO, that you give ample time to monitor that patient before you just send them on their way. With that being said, it's just so important that we're not simply doing all these interventions as a protocol standpoint. You have to really look at the entire patient, what comorbidities they bring to the table and make it individualized. And Tanner did a great job of describing that. But some of the comorbidities I want to talk about that just alter what kind of plan that you would do uh, from the sense of, let's say you have a patient who is on chronic pain medications. Well, then obviously you know that they're going to need opioids that are dosed in excess of whatever their baseline dose is. Because I could be giving somebody what I think is a plenty uh, satisfying amount of fentanyl or Dilaudid, whatever it may be. But if it's a patient that at home has a baseline dose of opioids, that might be just equal to what I'm giving this patient in PACU, which would just cover their baseline dose that they always get. And I'm not even covering the excess amount of surgical pain that they have. And so you need to be conscious of the fact that you're going to need to go up to a higher level of opioid uh, dosing to cover some of these patients' pain management. Um, what, what happens if, let's say you have an obese patient? Well, one of the things that should be red flags in your head right now, if I have an obese patient and if I give a lot of uh, sedatives slash respiratory depression, uh, pain management in the recovery, this obviously are two things that are not going to go well together. And so because these, these obese patients are more prone at a higher risk for upper airway obstruction and respiratory depression. So if I can do things that kind of navigate away from those sedatives and respiratory depressant drugs, I'm going to use that multimodal approach and do other sorts of interventions. These are great uh, candidates for any type of regional anesthesia or something along those lines that are just going to limit the amount of narcotics that you have to give. Uh, let's say you have a patient that has an increased bleeding risk. Uh, you might not want to give NSAIDs, Toradol, anything that would potentiate the increased bleeding. If you have somebody who's already at an increased fall risk, in this case, you may not want to do a peripheral regional anesthesia. Um, and if you do, you don't want to send them on their way, maybe after getting a, uh, a total knee and you did a adductor canal block, maybe you did a fentanyl nerve block, or maybe you did a uh, femoral nerve block, whatever the case may be, you're going to be limiting either the sensory or both the sensory and the motor components of that extremity. And if you already have somebody who's weak and at an increased fall risk, just know that this is really going to increase that just to a whole other degree. And so the point here, you can go on and on with so many different types of specific patient instances and comorbidities and things that they would bring that would individualize their care. But uh, for the sake of time, we'll kind of wrap it up. But really the, the point that I want to get here is don't just simply treat a patient the same as you would every other patient, because this is the exact dose that you've always given. This is the exact method that you've always done, the exact medication you've always done in these situations. That's the beauty of anesthesia is we're qualified and trained to be able to 
uh, adapt and create individualized care for these patients. And so we have the availability to choose which drug we're going to do, which intervention we're going to do, et cetera. So think outside the box. Don't just simply treat just to treat. Um, again, look at, was well, this patient in pain because of the surgical site? Are they in pain because they had to lay in an awkward position for the last four hours and they uh, maybe are having positional pain? Is it uh, because they're nauseous? Is it because they're just kind of claustrophobic? They're hot. I have patients that are very squirmy and moving around because they're just hot. They want their gown ripped off of them. They want blankets off of them. They want to sit up straight. And it's not because they're in pain. They're just uncomfortable in that position. Uh, so don't just think necessarily that when you see a patient kind of thrashing around in their recovery bed, that you need to go treat them with the same pain medication that you would any other patient that you see in that predicament. Um, so, but hopefully this has been beneficial for you. Uh, again, we really wanted to just do an overarching view of the importance of post-op pain, uh, post-op control, not only just to make them comfortable, but just to set them on the right path to recovery, uh, how to just get them for one out of recovery sooner, out of the hospital sooner, but then on their way to back to a normal lifestyle. Again, some of these medications, we didn't go fully in detail on the mechanism of action for, uh, again, because we've gone through them in the last couple episodes. So feel free to go back. Uh, listen to either our non-opioid uh, anesthetic talk that we did where we talked about all the adjunctive therapy. Um, if you want to get more information about this specific, about these specific opioids, go back and listen to our opioid talk. Uh, in those episodes, we go in a lot more detail about the onset of action, side effects, duration, et cetera, of all these medications. Um, but again, hopefully this is beneficial for you. Uh, our main goal here is to be able just to provide the best care not only intraoperatively but also just really on a whole perioperative scope uh, how to make these patients as comfortable as possible. Mm -hmm.